I will be reading from 2 Samuel 3, 1 through 21. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The sons were born to David in Hebron. The first was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. The second, Khalid, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had, a con- had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aya, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, so he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers, messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring me called daughter of Saul when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Thanks, Nikki, for reading that. Uh, I was very happy to let someone else read that passage with all of those names, so uh, nice job. You did, you did awesome. Uh, My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you to our service uh, this morning. Uh, As you just saw, we're in a sermon series in the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're now in 2nd Samuel. They're they're broken up into two books because the story is so long, it wouldn't fit on one scroll. when it it was written, and so we're now moving in to 2 Samuel, and what we're seeing is 
uh, something that looks like maybe a scene out of Game of Thrones, right? There's uh, horrible violence going on. There's civil war. There's just barbaric treatment of, of, of each other. Um, and it's just kind of a pretty wild story. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to look at David, who in our story today, he's a prince, and he's a prince that brings peace. In a, in a land that's broken by civil war, where there's people betraying each other, that hate each other, that want vengeance, we're going to see David uh, do something that looks very peaceful and um, resembles Jesus. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. But let's just really quick summarize this story that, that Nikki just read. So in 2 Samuel 3 up through verse uh, 21, basically there's, this is what you need to know, there's a civil war more or less right now. We have two factions fighting against each other. So we have King David, who you're probably familiar with, even if you don't know much about the Bible, Israel's greatest king. Uh, you know, there's a statue of him that we all know about. But this guy, King David is not quite king yet. Um, the king was King Saul, and he has just died. And now his son, uh, Ishboseth, Ishboseth, is ruling over Israel, and his commander of his army is a guy named Abner. And King David, or Prince David right now, he's kind of king, kind of not, is leading over uh, Judah, which is a couple of the other tribes of Israel, and his military leader is Joab. And so we have this, this civil war. After King Saul has died, uh, Israel is now following his son, Ishboseth, and uh, Judah is following David, even though God has promised that David would become the king. So Israel's king actually uh, offends his, his major general. He says, hey, you slept with my father's concubine. And Abner gets really upset, and he says, how dare you say that about me? I've only been loyal to you, but now I'm going to go over to David because you offended me. How dare you? And so Abner now leaves. He goes over to David, and he says, hey, uh, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you all of Israel. We'll unite all of Israel under your kingship. And David says, yes, great. I'll accept your offer, but first you must bring back my wife. And so King David had married uh, King Saul's daughter, Michal. And when Saul turned against David, he took away Michal from David and has been keeping her. He even gave her to be married to another man while she was still married to David. So David says, I want you to bring back my wife. Uh, she was stolen from me by her father, King Saul, and... Yeah, I, I miss her. I love her. I want her back. And it will also help unify these two families that are at war with each other, Saul's family and David's family. So Abner agrees. He goes back. He persuades all the elders of Israel to make David their king. And then he goes back to tell David the news. And David prepares a feast for his enemies and offers friendship and peace. And so we have this great, I mean, don't read the next verse. Uh, verse 22, because the story changes. But right now, we have this great civil war that now turns into peace. Enemies become friends. Forgiveness is offered. There's now peace in the land rather than uh, civil war and people fighting against brother, against their kin, against their, tri you know, their fellow tribes of Israel, and we have peace. So that's our story here today. So what we like to do and actually have been in maybe almost all of our sermons in First and Second Samuel, we're going to look at this passage through two lenses, a, a human lens 
These are real people. These are real events. What can we learn about reconciliation and peace? What can we learn about foolishness and about vengeance here in this passage? Because these are real people, real events, and we are people as well. We're also going to see, uh, towards the end of the sermon, we're going to also look at this passage through a divine lens. And if God is sovereign over all, if he is the writer of salvation history and the writer of this book, we can understand that there's going to be stuff even beyond what David and, and Joab and Abner and others think is actually happening. But first, let's just look at this as a human story, a real story, and what can we see and learn. We'll see things like what's wise to avoid as well as how can we make peace among our enemies and more. But first, before we even get to that, I want to talk about polygamy, which, uh, yikes, right? Um, it's come up a bit in this, passage, or in, in, in this sermon series as well, in these books. Uh, we saw it at the beginning of our passage today. David had multiple wives. David, who's supposed to be the good king, actually has many wives and many sons among them. And so our response right off the bat uh, is, is maybe disgust and sadness and confusion. Like, this is horrible. This is evil. This is uh, just breaks my heart when I hear about what is happening to these women, to these marriages, to these kids who are born in it. Confusion. How can King David, maybe the greatest character in the Old Testament, how can he be a part of this? Maybe our responses are there, or maybe your response is a bit more uh, interested because um, you haven't heard about polygamy before. You're thinking about it. Or maybe you're even thinking, oh, lucky David. He gets to have more than one wife. And before you start judging other people in this room for their different responses to this, we just live in a reality where sister wives, a show about polygamy in America right now, is unbelievably popular. People are intrigued by it. Maybe they're disgusted by it. Maybe they kind of wish they could be a part of it or live vicariously through it. Or maybe they absolutely hate it. Or just polyamory, which is uh, similar to polygamy with, with kind of without the marriage or with both partners being able to have mul multiple partners. Whether it's polyamory or sister wives just having great popularity, this is just something that's not too far off from a reality, from our world. This story is written thousands of years ago, but in some ways it's crept into our world, or maybe it's just always been in our world and in our hearts. So we might have many responses as we hear, the king that God chose has multiple wives. What do we do with that? Well, first, I just want us to see uh, some things of the way that God has designed gender and male and femaleness and marriage. And to see that, even though this great king, this king that follows God and is close to him in many ways, is also doing something quite wrong and harmful and sinful, despite it being what all the other kings are doing in that day. So it's really quick. Just look through the Bible. What does the Bible say about marriage and polygamy? Is this story uh, good or is this story a bad example? Well, first, at the very beginning of the Bible, as soon as God creates humanity, as soon as he creates a male and a female, as soon as he uh, joins them together in a marriage ceremony, at the very beginning of the Bible, this is the stuff we read. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So anything but this type of marriage, one man, one woman, connected, faithful, for, uh, to the end of their lives, is uh, wrong. It's outside of God's plan. It brings harm. It hurts people. And actually, as we just continue to read the Bible, there's even a law in the Old Testament that says, especially even for kings, this is just a really bad idea. Not only is it wrong, but it's especially wrong, or, or the consequences of that could be especially harmful if a king takes more than one wife. So in the law we read in Deuteronomy 17, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. So in the ancient world where kings would marry many wives to do peace treaties and to enlarge their kingdom and to say, hey, we want to connect with this tribe or with this nation. Uh, let's uh, intermarry for the sake of that. God warns Israel, if your kings act the way all the other nations work, it's actually going to hurt you. As you welcome in Philistines and Canaanites and Egyptians into the palace, they're going to bring along their gods with you. And it's going to actually hurt not just this one marriage, but also will hurt the whole land. And as we fast forward into uh, when Jesus shows up, he too uh, repeats what God did in the very beginning. Jesus in Matthew 19 says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no, no longer two, but one flesh. Or we could say here, they're, they're not, this is not three. This is not four or six. They're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And as we continue through the Bible, we read as Jesus sets up his church that he says that elders, overseers, the, the pastors within a church should, if they're married, only have one wife. If they have more than one wife, they're not qualified to be an elder or overseer within the church. They can be single, which is great, or if they're married, they must only have one wife. Maybe even most importantly, though we're not going to get to it fully till towards the end of the sermon, uh, the gospel just says that if, if gender was given as, as a picture, as a symbol of God's love for his people, God calls himself a husband and his people, his bride or his wife, then anything besides that, one man, one woman together in, in, a, in a singular, committed, eternal love is just showing a false picture of the gospel, a false picture of how we're connected to God in his love for us. So all throughout the Bible, polygamy is not good. It, it brings harm. It hurts people deeply. And, and as we read the Old Testament or just any part of the Bible, there's a huge difference between what's described and what's prescribed, right? There's a difference between this is literally what happened, and I'm telling you, the author of the story is saying, versus prescribed like a doctor saying, you should do this. This is good for you. And this story, because the rest of the Bible says polygamy is harmful and bad, is describing what the king did, not prescribing, saying it's good. You should do this as well. And when we read the Bible narratively, when we look at the story, when we look at the histories, what do we see? What is described when polygamy happens? It's always 
conflict. It's always broken hearts. It's always competition and jealousy and revenge and sin. Conflict and pain every time. Think about the characters in the Bible that have more than one wives. Abraham and Jacob and these kings. We're going to see this be a huge snare in David's life as he treats his wives uh, very not well at times and has many wives. So we're going to see described in this story that polygamy leads to unhealth, conflict, pain, and more problems. Now just to speak to the side of some of us in this room that are just intrigued by polygamy or polyamory or just think, hey man, even in my, you know, sinful nature, in my college days, I thought, man, having more than one partner would be great. The reality is that's just a false lie that our world tells us or our sinful hearts tell us. And in fact, in, you know, let me just share part of my story. Uh, being singularly committed to my wife, Amy, for others might seem like, why are you doing that? I mean, you, you watch TV, movies, read books, and often the guy's about to get married, and on his, you know, as he's announcing his engagement to his friends or maybe at his bachelor party, his buddies are like, dude, you're only going to sleep with one woman for the rest of your life. It's stupid. Why would you do that? And sometimes the fiancé, the guy even says, oh, man, I didn't think about that, or I'm kind of freaking out myself. And so maybe that's kind of nor- normal in our, in our sinful natures, but the reality is that... The way that God created marriage, if you do choose to get married, is supposed to be a place where you feel safe and secure, where you're loved unconditionally, and you're chosen by someone who has singular eyes just for you, which is all a a whisper and a picture of God's love for you as well. And so my experience with my wife, Amy, is that I, I I have a safe place where I can be myself, where I can make mistakes, where I don't have to put on a mask, where I don't have to perform or else the next day she's going to leave me or abandon me. I have been chosen by someone else. I have been loved by someone else who has singular eyes uh, just for me and that creates a place where I can flourish, a place where I can know that uh, she's committed and she can know that I'm committed to her. So although polyamory or polygamy might sound kind of exciting and intriguing to our hearts at times, it actually leads to pain and unhealth and conflict, whereas uh, fidelity and commitment and unconditional love and sacrifice brings health and joy, although very imperfect in this world, all the while looking ahead to God's relationship towards us and Christ's relationship to the church In the ancient world, singleness just was not valued, right? Why would you be single? They would argue. Unlike the New Testament, where the the New Testament and Jesus, Jesus himself stayed single. Jesus himself had single disciples, male and female, and chose to be single his entire life. And when the New Testament uh, church gets kicked off, we have singles being a huge part within the church. And, and having biological babies is not the point of male and females' lives. And you have the Apostle Paul, who writes a huge chunk of the New Testament, also being single, even saying things to the church, saying, hey, if possible, I want you to stay single. I'd love for you to be single like me. It's great. It's a gift. And marriage is also great, and it's also a gift. 
But that just wasn't so in the ancient world, and we see just how it plays out here in this story. And all of this points ahead to that uh, we just need something more, right? The story shows that there's big problems and that we need a better spouse, a better king, a better husband who will love faithfully and with singular loving eyes. All right, let's continue on the human side and learn, I think, a pretty important lesson that maybe a lot of us were taught the opposite. There's a great danger in us reading the Bible, reading these ancient stories, and thinking, okay, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? That's just like natural to do. When we watch film, when we read stories, when we read books, we want to know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, right? And when we transpose that into our reading and interpretation of the Bible, it leads to a lot of problems. Let's just talk about a few of those. Right off the bat, we're like, well, who's the good guy? Joab or Abner? Which, which general of the army should I be rooting for? Or who's the good king? Saul's son? Ishbosheth? Or King David? Who should I root for? But the problem is, when we see one king or one person as just a hero, as just a villain, we get ourselves in lots of trouble. Let me talk about that in, in just a second. Like we just said with polygamy, there's a huge difference between what the Bible describes and, and shares what really happened versus what the Bible prescribes and says this is good, this is wise, this is healthy. The same thing we could talk about here in our story. There's, there's a very difference, very big difference between describing what happened and saying this is what should happen or God was behind this or this is good. And so just like this week, the Star Tribune reported a horrible evil crime that a man held his wife and seven kids hostage, killing two police officers and a fireman, and then committing suicide. Our hearts break as we read this story and hear about it. Break for the police officers and paramedics, those who have died, their peers who now are afraid and mourning, their families who are grieving. So we pray for them. And we also pray for the kids and the woman who are held hostage and had to go through that as well as other victims of domestic abuse. So we read this story, our hearts break. We don't need the Star Tribune to say this was an evil act. We don't need the headline to say this was wrong, this was sinful, because it is just so obvious, right? And, and many times that's also what's going on when the Bible writes history, theological history, when the Bible uh, describes what happens. And so just because we read passages in First and Second Samuel does not mean God condones it or is behind it, but is rather, what rather is describing what's going on. So we don't have to pick a good guy or a bad guy. And when we do, when we see these stories as black and white, good guys and bad guys, it just gets us into lots of trouble. One way it does that, it just makes us then want to excuse sin or overlook sin, right? If David's the hero then heroes do good stuff, right? And so then we begin to overlook his great falls or, or excuse the sin that he does. Or when we see bad guys doing kind of good stuff, we are confused about that. And maybe we just, uh, yeah, we have, have problems in categorizing this stuff. But rather the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ tells us that all humans are sinful, heroes and villains, good guys and bad guys. And the human condition that we're all born into is unbelievably complex and layered. So everyone in the story is part hero, 
part villain. Everyone has good days and bad days, has good motives and bad motives, has sinful actions and righteous actions. And so the gospel actually tells us we're all sinners, we're all broken, there are not any full true heroes in this story. We need someone else. We need someone who is human, but even more than human, because humans are broken and and sinful and uh, imperfect at our core. And the danger of seeing these stories as just black and white or good guys and bad guys is that it leads us to just think there must be a moral for the story. Be like the hero, don't be like the villain. But that's not the way the Bible uh, usually reads itself. And though there are stuff we can learn, which is why we have the, the human lens, we look at our passages, what's even more important than that is how it gets us to the gospel or how we see Jesus in it. But one more thing before we get to the divine side. Let's look one more time at David. He is, in a lot of ways, hero-like in this story. Definitely not all. He begins by being a polygamist, which we are against. Yet we also see him resembling our Savior as he is a a king who forgives, a, a prince who's about to become king, who brings peace among those who have tried to kill him. And so one more layer, let's look at this. Let's see that uh, in David, we see an example of forgiveness and peacemaking as we see David, the soon-to-be king, the the son of King Saul, son-in-law, bringing peace among his enemies. Doing so by forgiving those who are against him. Showing compassion towards those who are trying to kill him. By showing gentleness and friendship and hospitality. Tim Keller, writing about forgiveness, has this great statement. He says, Forgiveness, then, it's a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving, rather than in retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. Forgiveness and pursuing justice must go hand in hand. In fact, if you don't forgive the person, your justice-seeking will likely veer into the territory of revenge. And that's exactly what David is doing here today. He's volunteering. He's choosing to suffer. He's saying, justice is, I'm the one true king. Ishbosheth is not. They should be punished for ruling, for not submitting, for, for fighting against their own people, for not making me king. But what David is doing here, he is voluntarily choosing to suffer, saying, I'm going to forego justice. I'm going to forego my pride. I'm going to offer mercy and grace towards my enemies. He chooses to bear the cost himself so that reconciliation and peace can reign rather than more death and more violence. And Keller continues by talking about if we don't forgive, our seeking for justice actually often leads towards vengeance rather than wanting justice. And if you read the next few verses after our passage today, There's a character who comes in and who does think he wants justice, but actually it turns into vengeance and revenge and murder. In contrast to David, who takes on the suffering himself in order to bring peace. In our passage, what we see here today, David, the way that he offers, or the way that he brings peace between not just people who are upset with each other, but people who are at war with each other, who are trying to kill each other, The way that David brings peace is 
through showing kindness and reconciling and forgiving and showing hospitality, inviting his enemies into his own home. This might seem kind of crazy, and it is kind of crazy. It might seem impossible, and in many ways it is impossible. But as we just look at this through the human side, we can see that forgiveness is good, peacemaking is good. Probably thinking of other passages that speak about this in the Bible. I remember my mom, in some of her greatest wisdom, taught me that it's really hard to hate people that you're praying for. Usually talking about my little brother, probably. But it's quite true, right? If, if, if we have enemies, if we hate people, if we have people who are against us, maybe not people trying to kill us or, or take our throne away from us, but the reality is, just on a practical level, praying for someone who's against us, it actually warms our heart towards them. Kind of reminds us of Jesus. Probably where my wife, or probably where my mom got this from. Jesus saying things like, you should love your enemies. Don't kill your enemies. Don't hate your Love your enemies. Pray for those who are persecuting you. Blessed are those who make peace, Jesus taught, for they will be called the children of God. God's people, God's children will not be warmongers, will not be violent, but will be those who make peace. Now that's a call for us, an impossible call at times. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But as we just read this story, and maybe you know how the story continues. Maybe you know David screws up big time. There's more violence. There's more civil war. David's sons are a mess. We're going to see that the story just tells us we need something more. The story doesn't end here. Even though it kind of ends a little bit of a high note, we just still, even sprinkled throughout these 21 verses, we, need, we realize that there's a need for something more. The story gets pushed forward. There is no period, the end, they all lived happily ever. Whether you just remember all of 1 Samuel, or whether you read the next few verses after our passage and the rest of 2 Samuel, or maybe you just read our own passage and you see just all the sin and brokenness and imperfection, the story gets pushed forward. There's a need for something more. If we kind of just pause and think, what's going on right now? What do God's people have right now? What does David have? What does Israel have? What does Judah have right now? They have God's law. They know what they should do. They know what God requires of them. They also have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbolic picture uh, and, and thing where God's presence dwells physically, literally, among them. They have a king, and not just a king who was chosen by the people, Saul, which we'll talk about in a second, but the king that God chose for them. They have the priesthood. They have intermediaries, who, who go before a holy, perfect God so that sinful Israel can approach God. They have the sacrificial system. They have ways to kill innocent animals so that their sins can be forgiven. They're living now in the promised land, this literal space that God gave his people to live and to prosper in. They have the tabernacle, which will soon become the temple, which is the literal place where God lives among his people. What else could they need, right? And yet... 1 Samuel. Today's passage. 2 Samuel. Yet, what a mess, right? If this was the solution, why is David such a mess? Why is Israel such a mess? Why does this look like the screenplay for an episode of Game of Thrones or something that's rated X? Right? What a mess. If this was the solution, 
it would be, and they lived happily ever after. So the story must continue. This just did not work. It was good for a time. It, it, it whispered of what actually would be the solution. It kind of helped, but it did not ultimately work. What they need is a true and perfect hero. One who forgives rebellious and foolishness. One who makes peace. One who brings a security and love that allows people to not be in constant worry of not being enough, but rather free to live and thrive and respond to that security and love. Which leads us to the divine side. As we look at our passage, we see a picture of this. We see what the solution is going to be. Whispered, it's not clear here, but we begin to see what the true solution will be. If this isn't working, what actually will work. And so as we look at our passage through a divine side, again, if God is the all-powerful author of salvation, then what we can see in these stories and characters and actions can actually mean more than they thought it mean, uh, meant in that time. Or what we think it means at just first glance. So let's look at the very first verse we had in our passage today through a divine lens, right? The very first verse in our passage was there's a war between the house of Saul, the house of David, but the house of David was growing stronger and stronger as the house of Saul was getting weaker and weaker. And so God's plan of salvation was through David. Israel's was through Saul. They said, this is the way we're going to thrive. This is the way we're going to defeat our enemies. This is the way we're going to live and they picked a king who was big and strong and handsome and looked like all the other nations. So the way of humans' desire for, for salvation, for life, for prosperity, for rule, the way of Saul is getting weaker and weaker and weaker, while God's way of salvation and life and health and prosperity is growing. David is becoming king here in our story today, and we'll soon see his coronation, and much of his godly rule as the chosen king. And we're going to see how God's covenant with David, this imperfect sinful guy, will lead towards the one true Messiah. So if Saul is, is man's choice, man's plan for salvation, rule, life, and prosperity, it's beginning to wane. Whereas God's plan of how he is going to save and rule and bring life and prosperity is growing. Saul his kingdom is beginning to end while David's kingdom is, is growing now and we know that it will be a kingdom that will last forever. We'll get to that in just a second. Saul, who often doesn't trust God and trust in his own strength or his own ideas or his own works, that way is waning where the, the, the way of trusting in God, making a covenant with him, being united to him is growing. And we're going to see that from David's line, a king of all the kings is going to be born. A Messiah, an anointed one, a promised one, a rescuer, a savior is going to come from David's line. Someone that's even called a prince of peace. So let's look at that. Jesus being the ultimate prince of peace. Whereas David is a prince, a son of a king who ushers in peace between warring people groups who through his compassion, through bearing sin and injustice on himself voluntarily, brings peace and ends war. 
we're going to see that someone in his line is going to be not just a prince of peace, but the uppercase P, prince of peace. So our story ends, but we realize the solution's not there. It is not that they have lived happily ever after. All these lowercase s solutions don't fully work. And so our story must move forward. Despite David often being a good king, or being the one that God chose, not man chose, a king who actually did bring some peace, David fell far, far short from being a perfect example, from being uh, bringing victory for his people and uniting. He couldn't even unite his own family. He was a far cry from showing holiness or giving his people full prosperity under his reign. In fact, Israel uh, falls into great ruin just a few decades after David. This is kind of the high point in a lot of ways, these next few chapters of Israel's history, and they're not even really that high. They're still quite messed up. So in just a few decades, Israel will fall, and a few hundred years later, the great prophet Isaiah has this great prophecy about the final solution that will come. God promises and makes a, a covenant, a promise with David that someone through his line will be the Prince of Peace, will be the salvation that they are really looking for. In Isaiah 9, we read this foreshadowing of the Messiah, this foreshadowing of someone who would come in David's line, this foreshadowing, this prophecy of Jesus. We read, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, for you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be used for fuel in the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So 2 Samuel 3 ultimately is about Jesus, is about longing for this Jesus to come, the Prince of Peace, the King and Rescuer in the line of David who will defeat enemies and who will reign in peace, not just for a couple decades, but for forever. That is what 2 Samuel 3 is ultimately about. So let's look at Jesus. Let's look at the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the ultimate, not just Prince of Peace, but King of Peace, who sends his people in peace. Our story ends with, with uh, David's enemies leaving. He sends them. He says, go in peace. We're no longer at odds. We're no longer fighting. We are united. We are friends. Whereas Jesus is the ultimate king who gives his people peace. And he does so through his divine forgiveness and bearing the punishment, the sin on himself. He does not demand justice. And like David, he takes on the shame, the punishment, the penalty on to himself so that peace can be made possible. Jesus takes the cost and the punishment onto himself so that his enemies can enter into his kingdom reconciled to him. Which is beautiful. 
and, and crazy, which then leads us to do the same. And maybe as I was talking about Jesus' commands to us to love our enemies, to pray for those or who, to, who pray for those who persecute us, to be a peacemaker in the face of injustice and hatred and being sinned against. Maybe you thought, how can I love my enemies? I know that that's what Jesus said, but it's impossible. How could Jesus command this of us? And this is, this is how. This is why. At least Fitzpatrick writes about this. She says, rules, even what Jesus said, love others, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Rules without the assurance of love and forgiveness, they're powerful, sorry, they're powerless to make us love God and others. Indeed, love is the only power that is strong enough to transform us into humble, loving, and kind people. That is the gospel, guys. The, the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus first loved you when you were unlovable. And now through that, through that love, your heart will be transformed. And loving your enemy will actually be not impossible, but possible. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive a new heart and a new mind that will make enemy love not just impossible, but actually something you even eventually might even desire as he changes your hearts and your minds. Rules, laws, commands do not change our hearts, do not give us the power to do what we should do, but rather what changes hearts? Love. And God's love towards us first. Which leads to seeing Jesus in another way. Jesus also is the ultimate king of peace who doesn't just kill his enemies, but loves them. We saw this with David today. He does not squash the insurrectionists. He does not execute or hang his enemies. Even though it says Saul's army, his power was waning, David's was getting stronger. Like David, Jesus is the ultimate king of peace who doesn't kill his enemies, but loves them. Now when we realize that we're apart from Jesus in our sinful nature, we're the bad guys, this is actually really good news. When we're honest with ourselves and we say, apart from Jesus changing my heart and mind, I'm actually kind of like the bad guys in the story. When we realize that we're the ones with lust and polygamy in our hearts and minds, we're the ones that want to be the king of our own lives, not kneel to the rightful king, and we would fight anyone who tries to dethrone us, we're actually the ones who want vengeance and who want blood when people sin against us. We're the ones that foolishly think that uh, if we just have the right systems in place, the right laws, the right rules, the right rulers and leaders, then society will thrive, kind of like Israel did with having all those great things, yet they did not fix the ultimate problem. When we realize that we actually uh, resonate or look a lot more like the bad guys in this story than with the good guys, this is so good news to us. Jesus is the ultimate king that does not kill his enemies, but forgives them, who loves them, who even dies for them. Just like David showed compassion and kindness towards those who hate him, Jesus too invites enemies to become his friends, who invites those who hate him to a feast that he prepares who invites those who are against him into a salvation that's described as a wedding banquet 
the greatest party. He takes enemies and makes them into friends. Jesus is the ultimate king of peace who, like David, would rescue his people from the hand of not just one enemy, but of all their enemies. And not just for a decade, but for forever. And he would do so through his own pierced hands. He would rescue his people from the hands of his enemies through his own hands being torn apart and nails being shoved through them. And Jesus is the ultimate king of peace who deeply loves his bride. Jesus has one bride. The church is a singular bride that Jesus deeply loves. And he cannot live without her. Jesus cannot live without his bride. Yet unlike David, Jesus doesn't just shed other people's blood in order to win a bride, or order to rescue a bride, but Jesus sheds his own blood to rescue us from the prison of sin and death. And unlike David, Jesus is the perfect husband who has eyes for a singular bride, the church. And unlike David, Jesus is a faithful spouse to his bride. And as the church, because our spouse is faithful, we are secure. It doesn't matter if you have a bad day. It doesn't matter if you and I are bad spouses. If we don't perform, if we don't look good, if we cheat on him, if we're unfaithful, if we're cowards, that does not change Jesus' love towards us. He loves us unconditionally. So that means we are safe. It means we are chosen. He does not pick us because we're worthy of being picked or because we're extra lovely or the most beautiful or the most attractive or desired. He chooses us just because he loves us. So we are secure. We are chosen. We are safe because he died so that we don't have to. He has created a kingdom for us to live in for eternity and promises us life with him and forever. And we are desired by our Savior. He doesn't just have to pick us because it was an arranged marriage, but he picks us because he desires us. He loves you. Jesus loves you. He doesn't just have to love you, but he loves you. He desires you. He wants you. He picks you. And as our great Prince of Peace, he makes peace possible between enemy parties, between rebellious people like you and me that run away from him, that want to rule our own lives, and he wins peace for us as our great perfect bridegroom. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even in these very gruesome and barbaric and sinful and dark stories, even if there's a little bit of light uh, in, in how the characters act, God, we can see uh, the need for a savior, the need for a prince of peace, the need for a, a great king who is a faithful spouse that will love us unconditionally. And that we see exactly how you're going to do it. You're going to be a king who uh, forgives his enemies, a king who sheds his own blood rather than the guilty party's blood, a king who uh, creates a kingdom of peace, not of vengeance or blood, but rather peace, and even peace through justice because he takes on the, the wrath, the punishment 
the payment, the penalty, so that there can be justice and peace, so that vengeance and revenge and hatred do not continue and go on and on. God, we thank you for this good news. And even though it's wrapped in tough language and, and hard things to stomach and see, we thank you that we do know about the happily ever after. We do know about the good news, and we pray we'd believe it. Help us to believe it, to receive it, to want it, whether for the first time today or whether we just receive it again as good news and as good uh, bread that sustains us uh, for this week. We thank you, Jesus. We worship you. And we pray in your powerful and holy name. Amen.